This podcast is made possible by Vital Smarts, the Speak Up Experts. With more than 30 years of conversation research, three New York Times best-selling authors and over three million people trained, that's Vital Smarts. If you're struggling to hold a tough conversation in the office or at home, visit vitalsmarts.com.au slash DSTM to master your speak up skills and create an environment of accountability. It is a treatment of the whistleblowers that almost horrifies me as much as any of the others. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. They reviled. You know, the community cheers whistleblowers, but no one will employ them. I'm hopeful, but I think you really need to have very senior people put in jail so that fear overrides greed for for real change to happen. I hope this has something to do with Hawthorne. Alistair Clarkson Ah, is my crush of the week. The coaching genius of the weekend. I don't know many fathers who I know who would want a vegetarian cookbook to be brutal. Am I being, am I typecasting here? Oh, you are, and I think okay, that's rather sorry. sort of particular of your okay. socioeconomic group, Caro, that your men will like a big bit of beef. Never has there been a better stash. For the first time ever yesterday, I had to walk away from a pile of pine cones because I couldn't fit any more in my bags. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everyone, to episode 98 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with my dear friend, the bookseller, journalist and editor, former footy record editor, Corrie Perkin. Welcome, Corrie. G'day, Caro. Footy finals are in the air, and who tipped Hawthorne? You did. Very well done. (laughs) I knew Clarko wouldn't let us down. The heart ruled the head and the heart won. Spring is in the air. Corrie has got some not-so-fond and fond memories of winter. I've got a fabulous recipe that I took straight out of the age last week. We're both fascinated by what happened last week in the legal legal circles of Melbourne and the George Pell decision, which was just fascinating, Corrie. Um, the Archbishop of Melbourne yet again didn't cover himself in glory after that event. We've been to a reunion, 30-year birthday party for the Sunday Age. We have. We've got some great Everybody book around. so young. We've... We've got some great recommendations for Father's Day. Speaking of which, we're joined today by journalistic royalty, a woman I am so full of admiration for. I know, I haven't stopped curtsying all morning. (laughs) She's an author. She is promoting her second book. She's been promoting it internationally because, of course, problems with banks are not unique to Australia. But um, Adele Ferguson has won... Pretty much every journalistic award known to man. She's also received the Order of Australia, Adele. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. You've done a wonderful job with this book. The Gina Reinhardt book was riveting, but this book, Banking Bad, is the culmination of so many horrific stories that you uncovered that we've read about in The Age, that we've seen on Four Corners, 7.30 report. Is it a work of love as well as something that's been incredibly stressful because you've finally been able to fully go into detail about how all this unfolded? Yeah, it it is because, as you know, in in journalism, you're doing stories day by day, rolling them out. And this, you know, you're able to encapsulate what went wrong and put it all together. And, you know, I learn a lot from it when you put the timeline together and you think, so that happened on the day that I'd revealed that. The um, um, One of my favourite, the best performance Russell Crowe has ever given is in The Insider, which was about a whistleblower involving the tobacco industry in America, a true story. But it's the whistleblowers in your 
in all of your articles, and there was a great excerpt in The Good Weekend a few weeks ago, and um, the book starts with one story, um, the CBA whistleblower Jeff Morris, who you became, you got in touch with via a politician. Um, some of, as bad as families were treated and people were treated and the bad advice and cheated out of their life savings, it is a treatment of the whistleblowers that almost horrifies me as much as any of the, other, any of the others. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. You know, they treat, they reviled. You know, Jeff Morris was saying just a couple of weeks ago at one of the book launches, you know, the community cheers whistleblowers, but no one will employ them. You know, so he, he blew the whistle on forgery, fraud, and a cover-up by the Commonwealth Bank. And out of that, so much happened and many people got repaid. But, you know, he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. He suffered smear campaigns. His marriage broke down and he couldn't get a job. What I found extraordinary in your, not only the book, uh, Adele, which I I love despite my... um, contempt of banks and financial institutions, but also in your reporting over the years, which of course led to a Royal Commission, is the the whistleblowers enter into the space in kind of good faith, as it were. And not only are they uh, do they suffer the, the stresses you mentioned, but the, the banks, particularly the four banks, with their extraordinary corporate affairs units, their spin doctors, and everybody who's working on that side pulling them down, telling lies about them, contacting you and saying, the person that you interviewed today is a phony. The person that you interviewed today is a schizophrenic or has some sort of mental disorder. It's shocking. It is shocking. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the IOOF whistleblower. A really senior uh, official from IOOF emailed me. So I've got it in writing and I'm just rereading the email which was shocking at the time, but then, you know, you look back and it's saying he extorted, he was a schizophrenic, and he sent emails to colleagues threatening to kidnap their kids if they didn't comply. And it was all garbage. You know, this whistleblower was a sweet person who just wanted to do the right thing, went internally to blow the whistle and got terminated. And that's why he then came to the media. Corrie said to me um, after she finished your book that... um she thinks she's going to put all her money under the bed from from now on. I mean, she was being a little bit flippant, but I could understand why she Not said that. Not <laughs> necessarily. Should we have more faith now as a result of what happened and what the Royal Commission uncovered? I suppose I'm asking, there's obviously been positives out of this. There you absolutely talk to that? has, yeah. There's been positives because for a year we've had the spotlight on this sector and so they could no longer, you know, because I got the whole time, it's just a few bad apples, it happened in the past, we've paid compensation, it's a beat up, move on. But what the Royal Commission showed was that it was actually, it was institutionalised systemic financial ripoffs. You know, fees for no services is, you know, it's up to a billion dollars now across the sector. You know, they're going to be paying back billions of dollars in compensation, so they can't get away with that anymore. And there's been a number of recommendations from the Royal Commission. Whether they get taken up, because one of the problems that I, looking back over the years, is the lobby groups get involved. So as soon as it becomes draft legislation or even before that, the lobby groups are like a pack of locusts and they start trying to dilute everything, saying, you know, the world's going to fall down if you introduce this law or that law or you do something with this part of the sector. So I'm hopeful, but I think you really need to have very senior people put in jail so that fear 
overrides greed for, for real change to happen. If, am I wrong to hold it against Scott Morrison, as I did for a long time? He was so vocal against the need for a royal commission. Yeah. And, well, and, and this is something that you, you – um, well, there was a lot of pushback for you at that time, wasn't there? I mean, yeah. he, he ended – I think it embarrassed him and it will be a legacy, a memory he will always have to wear. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. He came forward and said, the tough cop on the beat. We don't need a royal commission because we've got a tough cop on the beat when they knew that – ASIC was anything but a tough, tough cop on the beat. And APRA as well. They were all somewhat negligent in their, in their watchdog of, of this industry. You, um, I, I heard your terrific interview with John Fain on 774 here in Melbourne a week or so ago. And as we know, John has a real thing about the connections between the financial sector and politics. And he, you and he had a very vigorous and interesting discussion about those ties. And you say early in the book, the bank's power rested not just in the profound wealth that they were producing, but also in the deep connection between the banks and the political establishment, by which you mean Treasury, uh, the Reserve Bank, um, ministers, um, former ministers who are now acting in the financial sector and so on. How endemic and how, cons- how endemic is this and how concerned should we be as citizens of, in a you know, thriving democracy that this is actually working at the top end of town? Oh, I think we should be really concerned because when people know each other, they can influence each other. So it's right at the top of the tree. You know, you have Mike Baird, who was the Premier of New South Wales, who's now got a very senior job at National Australia Bank. You've got Anna Bly, the former Premier of Queensland, who's now the head of the, you know, the lobby group for the banks, the AVA. You know, and it just goes on. Former governors of the Reserve Bank. Christopher Pine. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it just, it it goes on and on and on. So the connections are really, really deep and go very high up. One of the big losers out of the Royal Commission was the mortgage broking industry. And we all know mortgage brokers who've been pretty slumped and walking around town extremely concerned about their financial futures. What do you think what what do you think the regulations should be now? Well, with mortgage broking, it was meant to be very tough. The lobby groups got involved and so the the government and the Labor Party really backed away from that. So it's really business as usual for the mortgage broking. Which is which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's it a classic is. example of lobby groups getting yeah, involved. It is because, you know, Are you the, disappointed? I think they should have gone in harder on on the mortgage broking. You know, on the one hand, they do a good thing in that they, you know, more than 50% of mortgages are written by mortgage brokers. But but the way it's set up, the structure of it is conflicted remuneration because it's all commission-based. So what they, they get paid a bigger commission, the bigger the loan. So there's been loans that have been written that are too big for people to pay back or there's been fraudulent loans written and that all came out in the Royal Commission but nothing really has changed. Corrie, I I think um, what what you love about Adele's writing is that we were talking about this is that she takes on the big organisations and exposes things that you just can't, I can't believe how you've managed to do this Adele but the way um, you also humanise the horrific personal stories of everyday Families. Well, Carol, at the beginning of the book, and I love the structure of this, and you've written it like a skilled feature writer, and indeed, Carol has, has, you know, you've done this all through your career as well, Carol. You start with an anecdote because it's the way of storytelling. It's the complete way. And you start with National Senator John Wacker-Williams, who just recently retired from federal parliament, who I'm actually a huge fan of, I have to say. 
And he was the one who first contacted you and said, I've got this whistleblower um, and who ended up being Jeff Morris uh, from the CBO who I think should have a chat with you and the whole thing begins. But what you then go is it's, it's like um, Wacker Williams becomes this thread through your story because, of course, he was a, he was a victim of uh, bad banking management and bad decisions. He lost his farm, his home, his marriage. He ended up living in a caravan. It's an extraordinary story. Uh, can you just tell us just ever so briefly how that how how that kind of came about for John? And, and he's entering into parliament and then, of course, you know how he meets you. Yeah, so it was financial deregulation in the early 80s. So the banks are now trying to compete with foreign banks. And, and this is when it all started, This really, is when it all when started. When the rot, rot began. <clears throat> yeah, so um, what happened was there was no proper regulator. You had the NCSC, which had $5 million budget and 80 people. So you think about it, the banks are just lending like topsy. John Williams is a farmer. There's a drought on. He's living in Inverell, goes into the bank to take out a $200,000 loan because he can't afford to pay his bills. And he gets told about a Swiss foreign currency loan, which is a new whiz-bang loan. He trusts the bank. That just gives me shivers as you say that. But the catch is interest rates were 15% at the time. And they say this loan is different because you only pay 7%. The only catch is you have to take a minimum of $500,000. So he leaves with a $640,000 loan and is told what can possibly go wrong, nothing. He's shown graphs, how stable this is, and thinks, fantastic. Two weeks later, the currency changes, and that loan is now $1.5 million. You know, so he's, he, he can't pay it back. So he loses everything. And he picks himself up. He's lost, you know, he's living in a $2,000 caravan and decides that he wants to go into politics. Yeah, and and the the very end of your book, I, I mean, I actually had, you said you had tears. Um, Spoiler were, alert. Yeah, well, it, it, it's it's kind of, I suppose, on the record. I know, but, it, I know, it's but, history, I realise but, but you bring John back into the final scene of your book in the most beautiful way. It's, it's at his retirement and his speech in Parliament and family and friends and everyone are there. You um, and Janine Perrot have been invited as members of the media who are friends of his, and he pays you the greatest compliment um, by, by, you know, talking about your attributes and your fight for this. And I just felt that must have been such a complete journey for you and a really lovely way to bookend the book. Was that your intention or did it sort of come as the writing process occurred and you relive the memory? It, it came as the writing process occurred to it, and it just seemed so fitting right at the end that it, it ended with, you know, it started with him and it finished with him. He got his Royal Commission that he'd, he'd crossed the floor Uh, Throughout politics, you know, when he first went into politics in 2008, you had the GFC and Storm Financial, and he was in there straight away as this nobody backbencher helping Australians try and, you know, fight for what was, you know, after being dudded and done over. And it just went on and on. And then I met him, and he was doing it again and again. He crossed the floor, and then he got Parkinson's and had to leave. But he got his Royal Commission. Mm. Was there ever any pushback from your editors or your producers at any of your – I mean, the age, I guess, being a primary in the Sydney Morning Herald. Did anyone ever get heavied? Look, the banks tried to heavy, uh, threatening to pull advertising. And at one stage, the Commonwealth Bank, over the life insurance scandal, actually did. They pulled millions of dollars of ads. And that was at a really 
critical time at the at the age and and the herald because we the week before we'd let go a lot of people with redundancies because you know of the struggles with the media so that that was really confronting and tough to have millions of dollars pulled when you've got colleagues just the week before losing their oh, job shocking it was terrible it, and and it, what didn't what but what was the treatment towards you of your superiors because they were clearly backing you looking at the way the stories were run yeah, as they, they should did. have been they did back me you know in the early days there was one uh, editor who felt that, you know, with the financial planning scandal, he was buying the line of the banks that, you know, it had happened in the past. You've done your story, move on. But he, he realised when the parliamentary inquiry in 2014 recommended a Royal Commission into Commonwealth Bank, which is way back then, he, he actually wrote to me and said, you were right. Adele, I sit here with you and Caro and I think back to, you know, Caro is my friend, apart from being like you, an award-winning journalist. In fact, if the two of you ever decided to live together in the same house, you'd have to build an entire wing for all your silverware. Oh, I, I, but... de- I defer to Adele. I'm, I'm pretty jealous of her Logie, I must say. <laughs> I thought she might be of the, of the gong from the government or the Queen. Uh, but I remember as Caro's friend, when she was going through the Essendon drug scandal, the personal toll that that takes, you know, she's like you, professionally tough as and and on terra firma with all of her facts and her reporting. However, there's always some sort of personal toll that it takes and it's a very stressful time. And I wondered what, before the Royal Commission was announced, which must, must have been a great day for you, but what, how that manifested, that sort of stress or that anguish? Yeah, well, it was in the early days, it was really stressful because everyone thought I was just a bank basher. You know, so you had journalists from other newspapers who were pretty vitriolic. It was just as time went by and there were more scandals. By the time it got to 2016 and, and we had the life insurance scandal and Labor backed a Royal Commission, it, it wasn't so stressful. You know, the stress was more coming from getting so many people contacting me with terrible stories and thinking, how do I deal with this? And I still get that. I'm still getting so many emails from people and it becomes really overwhelming that you think, how can you help these people? So can we move fast forward to the current day? How concerned are you about the Trump, the Trump government's uh, trade war with China? And how's that going to affect Australia? Well, look, it's, I think it's really concerning. And you can see, you know, the markets are so jittery. You know, we we just don't know where this is all heading. But he did back down overnight, as we record this. He did he, at the at the conclusion of the the G seven. He has apparently backed down somewhat. Although what that means in Trump land, I have well, this no is the idea. thing. What what does it mean? You know, because it's every, every other. There's a lot of uncertainty. Do you think we're heading for a recession? It really does feel that way. You know, we've got Hong Kong. There's so many issues going on globally that it does feel like, you know, when you look at the Reserve Bank is constantly cutting interest rates to the point where they're, you know, heading towards zero. It is becoming an issue. It's becoming a big issue. Um, that's such cheering news for me as a retailer. Thanks for that, Adele. That's great. I just want to read in this but last... you're going to sell a lot of Adele's books, so on the upside... <laughs> yeah, that's the... <laughs> um, I just wanted to read this rather lovely paragraph and then ask you a question. It's very brief. Over many decades, hundreds of thousands of customers, possibly millions, have been ripped off by shonky financial advisors, dodgy financial and insurance products, or the fees for no service wrought. 
Farmers have lost their farms, small businesses have gone belly up and individuals have been financially destroyed. Consequently, many observers hoped a Royal Commission into financial misconduct would address compensation and remediation for these victims. So my question to you is, has it? No, not really. That was a really, it was a glaring omission in the recommendations. Over the years, there's been all these scandals that were exposed and the banks would announce a compensation scheme. They really lacked transparency. You didn't know how they were dealing with customers. That was never addressed. It's just tragic. It's absolutely, it's just tragic. Have we got any good news today, Adele? Tell me, tell me that legislation is in place. Tell me that they're working on this now. They are working on it. Josh Frydenberg, uh, a couple of weeks ago, said that they have now looked at the recommendations and they've got a, a roadmap going forward where they will be put in place by the middle of 2021. And I understand Essex done a 360 internally. They're now being a little more... They are. They're Aggressive. Being, they're, they've got a few new commissioners and they're, they're talking very tough. We just have to see it translate into reality because, you know, it's one thing for the government to say we're going to put in place these recommendations. It's, it's what those recommendations look like by the time they've been diluted. Well, for me, I'm putting the money under the bed, Caro. That's it. <laughs> well, we're, we're talk- look, we should say we're talking with the award-winning, multi-award-winning journalist Adele Ferguson about her new book, Banking Bad. Tell me, Adele, what fascinates me um, in the new media, and we know that there's a new partnership between the, a- the Fairfax, well, the agency, the Morning Herald and Channel 9. You've managed to navigate beautifully your work with Four Corners and 7.30 Report and your articles well, for we-, we in Melbourne in the age. How have you found doing, working in these sort of TV newspaper co-productions, which have have become a new thing and you seem to have done it better. You and Nick McKenzie seem to have done it better than anyone else. Yeah, I I love doing it. I I think that it just brings, some some of the stories get brought to life by being on TV. There's only so much you can do with the written word when you actually see people you know, pouring out what's happened or the bravery of them, it's a very different concept. And, you know, with the merger with Nine, I can still do ABC. I'm still able to do that or I have the option of doing uh, Nine Productions. So we might be seeing you on 60 Minutes sometime soon. No, no, Four Corners. <laughs> Stay there. Well, I, it's I a thought, good home. No ads. The, the, the Crown um, exposés with 60 Minutes, I thought that worked reasonably well. It did. It was, it was very powerful and it really got the message across. And you've just returned from New Zealand. So New Zealand also has some terrible has had some terrible experiences with banks and their treatment of their customers as well. Yeah, because the big four banks in New Zealand are owned by the big four banks in Australia. So there are similar cultural issues and yeah, they're going through their own private Idaho, shall we say. So Adele, it's bad news for a bookseller to hear you say as we just just before we went on air, you said this is it, I'm never writing another book. <laughs> Because your book on Gina Reinhardt sold really well and this one is romping out the doors, especially for Father's Day, so the timing is great. But is there is there not another book in you? Do we have to wait for another big scandal? I think so. That, writing that book was so exhausting, emotionally draining. It Yeah, it was blood, sweat and tears. It was much harder than I imagined. 
People always say that at the end of a big project. I'm sure you'll be back, be Adele. Back. Congratulations. So. <laughs> You've done a wonderful job. In fact, our last guest on the podcast was a few weeks ago, and that was Mike Sheehan, who nominated you as his crush of the week. <laughs> wow. I think he might have even sent you a message. I know he's been enormously impressed by some of the work you've done, as have journalists around the country. I, I don't know, frankly, how you've done it. And there has been an enormous amount of pushback. And the actual, you say the blood, sweat and tears, even into some of the stories you've managed to expose as well. So congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, Adele. Thank well you. done. And coming from you both, that means a huge amount. Thanks for producing such a beautiful book. And everybody who wants to know, Banking Bad, Whistleblowers, Corporate Cover-Ups, One Journalist's Fight for the Truth by Adele Ferguson. And it is $34.99 at a bookshop near you. Okay, that was Adele Ferguson. Corrie, her Journalism award, Awards, you've, you've done this research for me, eight Walkleys, including the Gold Walkley for the Four Corners program, Banking Bad, two Gold Quill Awards, which is the best of the best of the Melbourne Press Club Awards, two Gold Kennedy Awards, a Logie, a Graham Perkin Journalist of the Year, and this year she was awarded a member of the Order of Australia. Well, look, Nance, I don't want to sort of piss in your pocket here, but you and Adele really are for, uh, if we look at it, gender specifically for a lot of female journalists, younger ones, you are both the top of the tree. You are you are the kind of journalist that so many young people want to become, men and women. And it was just a real privilege to have Adele here, but more particularly reading her book. Uh, it was just such an overwhelming news story. We couldn't make sense. Every day there was another story, another story, but to actually have it in a book and written in a really sort of terrific way, so readable, it's a great book. I love it. Now, we've got a bit of housekeeping before we move on to some of our, stuff. our regular segments. And to all those robbers, the money is not under my bed, okay? <laughs> uh, Megan Bailey via yes. Facebook tells us that we kept Tony and her entertained in heavy morning traffic. She agrees with us to read Alan Jones. Of course you do, Megan. She wants him retired alongside Sam Newman and Benny Hill. Oh, poor old ben. Benny Hill's <laughs> dead. Um, milk in that's last, reti- That's retired in its, in its most obvious form. On to your T, um, GLT. Milk oh, in yes. last, according to Rack Riddell via Instagram, she judges or he judges how much milk is needed by the strength of the tea. Yeah. Stirring the tea is okay with Rack. So this came about because my daughter-in-law, Lib, is a black tea drinker and is not really accustomed to putting milk in and made me a cup of tea the other day and said, how do you actually do it? You know, give me the, give me the drill. What's the best way? And one of our listeners, Shasta Mason, uh, emailed me during the week and said, loved the section on tea on the podcast, completely agree with MIF, Milk In First. It is such a wonderful part of each day, preparing the tea, the teapot, a biscuit or something to accompany it. Is there anything better than someone else making you a cup of tea just how you like it? Well, I agree, Shasta. That is a really good thing when somebody can make a cup of tea perfectly for you. She does have a tip, Caro. She mentions, as she said, have you girls heard of tea leaves, tea from sassafras? I now get my tea from nowhere else. And I looked at tealeaves.com.au and it's in the Dandenong Ranges at sassafras and apparently they have over 300 tea varieties that you can choose from and you can actually get it sent to your home. Look, that is a lovely tip, but, you know, the old bushels, <laughs> nothing can beat it in my You're view. You're a plain sort of girl. <laughs> Caro, on your Clementines last week, uh, 
yes, which came from an Otto Lingi recipe. Uh, Shane Donoghue, who's one of our listeners from Andy's Doggy Daycare. Do you remember that place we talked about? Yes, Andy's Doggy I, oh, Daycare, the babysit dogs in Brunswick East. Shane's a very keen listener to our podcast, and he said, this will help you a lot. It promotes flowering, and as a result, more fruit worked for my lime tree. And I'm going to hold this up to you, although the potties can't see it. It's a product called Rich Grow Sulfate of Potash. Okay, I'm writing that down. I am I'm writing it down. At, I'm trying to look at the brand. Is it? It's called Soluble Power. It's soluble Power by Rich Grow, I think, is is actually the. And and Shane's taken a photograph of his one kilo um, bag there of sulfate of potash. So well, use my, that on your clementine tree and old, see how you go. Our old friend Andrew Seckle gave. Brendan and I a clementine plant in a small pot when our beautiful clementine, the child, was born. <laughs> Not the fruit. And um, it was moved from pot to pot, from area to area. It ended up in the front of a bay window in front of where I wrote stories every day for 15 years when I was working at home for the age. Oh, the inspirational and, clementine. Well, it just got bigger and bigger and it was so big. And, and now, of course, then, of course, we finally moved out of our family home after 21 years and I still drive past my old street and look at that clementine tree and hope that the one I finally sourced in my new place is going to, if it grows half as big, I'll be happy. You didn't think to do the midnight dig up? And put it in, put it in the back of the car, and put something smaller there the day after the auction. Corey, it wouldn't have fitted in the back of a Ute. It, it was just a very big tree now. Now, um, the August challenge. Report in, please. Uh, I haven't had another yoga lesson since the last one, but I have two organised for this weekend. Corey, you've got to go regularly. No, well, I well I will be once a week at least, but twice a week is better. Well. I'm doing twice a week this week. Okay, all right. Well, I yes, I, I want to hear regular yoga. But I did. Oh, look, I did. I played in a golf tournament on Sunday, Cara. This is interesting. I played on Sunday, and before I jumped, jumped. Last in the time car, I looked, there was no downward dog <laughs> on the 18th tee. <laughs> Gosh, some of the older ladies would have a bit of trouble with that, uh, especially if they wear a skirt. Uh, so before I went to golf, I did about 20 minutes of yoga stretching exercises trying to remember their names, but more just actually doing them, legs up the wall and, and downward dogs and all sorts of things like that. Gosh, I felt good at Before the end of the, the day. Where did you do that? In the oh. associate's dressing room? <laughs> no, at home, silly. At home before I jumped in the car. How and we're not play? associates, we're members I at know, our I'm club. A, I'm being sarcastic. How well, did you play? Well, you shouldn't be. Uh, middle of the field, didn't win the trophy, but that's all right. This is very disconcerting because I'm looking at you on a screen above you. That's hilarious. You just were there a second ago. <laughs> Oh, dear. Now, um, I, of course, am doing a recipe out of an old cookbook every week. Um, the res- my recipe of the week is a different one, but I got out the old Silver Palette cookbook this week, Corrie. This is a book mum gave me in the early uh, mid-80s when I moved back to Australia after living in the UK for two and a half years, late 80s, actually. Two women, they ran this unbelievable food shop in New York. They opened it in 1977. Their names are Julie Rosso and Sheila Lukens. They actually invented the chicken Monterey that our friend Otto has now made famous in his simple cookbook, um, and he pays credit to them in the cookbook. This is a wonderful cookbook. There are so many great chicken recipes in it. So I went back to one I've done many times. In fact, I've done it for you. You wouldn't remember. It was called Chicken Monterey. The ing- I'm not going to go 
go through it. But As in, in Monterey and the west coast of California. That's it. Um, the ingredients in, include, the oh, you get a chicken and you quarter it, et cetera, et cetera. I did it into eight. But there's brown onions, there's carrots, garlic, chicken stock, um, orange juice, very important, canned tomato pieces, of course, dried rosemary, um, red pepper, which adds to the beautiful colour, zucchini and lots of Italian parsley and the zest of an orange. It's a fabulous chicken recipe, a great one to do for the end of winter, chicken Monterey. And these two women, well, they had a bit of a falling out and they ended up in a Vanity Fair article, but their cookbook, they did a couple of them, Silver Palette, absolutely brilliant. It's funny how often people who co-edit a cookbook fall out. Remember Julia Child and one of her, not Simone, but the other one, they fell out as well. Yes, and um, it wasn't didn't did Stephanie and do, Bick, bickering at, at ten paces with your wooden spoon. Yeah, I, I probably won't go into what some closer to home because we might get into trouble. How did you enjoy the Sunday Age reunion? Uh well, I loved it actually. I was I'm not so good on reunions, and I get very nostalgic. But I loved it. The thing, the take home for me was Caro sitting around that table with all of us now thirty years older. I just saw our younger selves, and I thought, how audacious. And amazing we were as a group of late 20s, early 30-somethings. That's the average age of the Sunday Age staff. Now everybody's in their late 50s, early 60s. How amazing it was that we produced such an incredible newspaper. Young people given that task. Well, it was incredible, but it was also incumbent upon us when you look back at some of the talent and the people who worked there and the resources we had compared to now. I mean, I remember one of my first stories. Melbourne was bidding for the 1996 Olympics and ended up going to Atlanta. Of course, that um, ended up being a huge inquiry into people on the take on to the IOC. But I was sent to Puerto Rico. <laughs> I was sent to Puerto Rico. <laughs> that was the junket of for a the lifetime. Well, it wasn't a junket. I mean, it was quite hard work. But as if you'd be sent now to Puerto Rico to cover Melbourne's, it was an IOC meeting in Puerto Rico. You know, Princess Anne was there. and I know. And now we can't even afford to send people like Laura Tingle to the G7 conference. It was just a, an unbelievable time. It we was. had, and I, I remember Don Bradman. There was a big tribute to him at his original Oval in Barrel. I remember going up there and covering that. I mean, I, I was sent all over Australia. I was constantly going to New South Wales, South Australia, Queensland. Um, it was a wonderful time. There was we had so many resources and so many great people. God, there were a lot of laughs the other night. Well, though, the, the, there. the premise of, of of the other night was the very first staff members on that very first edition night of the 20th of August, 1989. And so lots of people have come and gone and worked for the Sunday Age in the meantime. I've come, people I've, there who weren't there on the first well, day, by I the way. I don't remember Peter Wilmoth being there the first night, but anyway, that's just beside the oh, point. We're, we're thrilled he was there. He became a big part <laughs> of the we, paper. But when, but I, when, I, when I looked around the table, I went, what talent, what talent, starting with Bruce Guthrie, deputy editor, and then Paul Daly, who's now just who's writing amazing history books and is a terrific reporter for The Guardian, you know, yourself, Mike Sheehan, Jeff Slattery. Doug Ayton, uh, Doug Ayton, who used to do a weekly profile column. Who fantastic. still does a radio show in Geelong, which I wasn't yeah. aware of. Yeah. yeah, no, look, it was, um, there were a lot of laughs. You know me, I love a reunion. I think I might have been one of the last to leave. You snuck off. I thought we'd be going home together, but. No, I did. I snuck off. I had to get up early the next morning. I left my scarf there, but somebody very kindly picked it up and brought it home for me. It was a great night. So I actually lost a piece of um, a stone out of one of my rings. I know. 
I know. That was a, a bit of a sad it's probably addendum. ended up in someone's wine glass. I'm going to get it fixed up anyway. And our wonderful former PA or EA Jana Totaro, who shouted us all very, very rich champagne at the end of the night because it was her birthday. Thank she is, you, she is such a gorgeous girl. I mean, the, when the photocopier used to break, Jana, get it fixed. You know, we were all so <laughs> mean to her and bossy. And, and like, now she's a, a, she's a seriously eminent and important businesswoman. Good on her. And like all reunions, we've all promised to have more and more reunions. And yes. I hope they happen. So well done to Bruce Guthrie and Jan Applegren and Louise Graham for organising it. Now, Corrie... I have a crush of the week. Can I do this now? Yes, please do. Now, don't get annoyed. It is a football one. Oh, but it is one. One day you'll come up with an original idea. No. What do you mean an original idea? It doesn't have to I be. I hope this has something to do with Hawthorne. Alistair Clarkson ah, yes. is my crush of the week. The coaching genius of the weekend. So we head into the finals. There are eight teams in the finals. Four of those eight teams, half the teams going into the finals, are coached by men who worked under Alistair Clarkson at Hawthorne, including Damien Hardwick, who was only there for one of the four premierships, the 2008 premiership. Um, a fifth coach, Chris Fagan, who has performed miracles with the Brisbane Lions, who finished second on the ladder. Who would have believed that the Gabba would be hosting a final this year? It's great for football, It's unbelievable. Chris Fagan, of course, was the director of coaching and then the head of football at Hawthorne with Alistair Clarkson. So you could say his influence, although Hawthorne are missing finals again, which is disappointing for you, is taking a, playing a huge role in September. What he has done over the last three weeks of the home and away season is Kevin Sheedy-esque. He, he went to Canberra and ran half naked around um, Mardukar Oval. In when the it was snow. Cold. And then, well, well, then laughed and, you know, made, made fun of the snow and they had a great win. Then he retired Jared Ruffhead in the most poignant and wonderful way. And, of course, we talked about that last week. But that was just a wonderful celebration of Jared Ruffhead's career, um, despite the hopelessness of the poor old Gold Coast Suns. He made the right decision in then going over to Western Australia and taking on West Coast in what seemed to me to be an impossible task, and yes, you were right. I do remember you scoffing at me last well, week Corrie, when I did. It's not unusual. Corrie, I'm, I'm not having a go at you, but I think your heart tipped Hawthorne last week. No one in their right minds would have thought Hawthorne, with everything West Coast had to play for. But he um, – and Chris Judd said on Footy Classified this week that he's almost um, – He's changed the game plan a bit as the season's got towards the end, which is incredibly brave. He, he described the game plan as almost Richmond-esque, which I was quite happy to hear. But I just think what he's done is, well, Cara, is quite un- – and, and, yet, Cara, and he's, got a long, say- another long, no, no, he's got a contract extension. And, boy, is your football club in great hands. Well, I, you know, well thanks, and I agree. And But, you know, you said last – well, you said just then that I, I my heart ruled my head with the tipping. But actually there was a part of me that thought if Clarko pulls this off – It'll mash up everything. I mean, not only could we get in if Footscray lost, uh, the doggies lost at um, Ballarat, which was probably not likely to happen, but it would, if we got a significant win, it could change all the percentages. He could actually look at the top eight, the final eight, and he could say, I had something to do with this. And that in itself, for a man like Alistair Clarkson, is enough. But everybody was starting to peak at the end of the season. I mean, James Sicily has just been getting better and better. And, and Named Burgoyne, in the All-Australian squad. Yep. And Burgoyne, I mean, what a, <clears throat> what a hero of the game. So, look, it, you know, it was great. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with your crush now. Okay, oh, good. Oh, well, thank you. Well, and In that case, we'll move on to BSF, Corrie. Now, that stands for Books, Screen and Food. It is thanks to our wonderful sponsor at Vital Smarts. And we ask you again, Corrie, is your organisation suffering from unsupportive, lazy 
or poor performers, laziness. There's nothing worse, is there? Well, I, think, I think all our gang are not lazy at the moment. I think we're all doing pretty well. I wasn't referring to my bookshop. <laughs> I'm sure they're all very hardworking. Vital Smarts training gives you and your staff the skills to speak up and hold each other accountable. It's used by more than 300 of the top Fortune 500 companies and globally proven to solve communication and behaviour problems in any culture or industry. Crucial conversations with a capital CC and crucial account Accountability training give you the tools and skills to talk about almost anything, even the toughest issues. So, Corey, visit vitalsmarts.com.au forward slash DSTM. Gosh, Adele would have had a few crucial conversations with yeah, poor well, bank people over her time, wouldn't she? Should have been more in the banks too for a listener-only offer and more information. Now, Corrie, um, you don't have one book, but you have five great recommendations yes, for Father's so, Day. <clears throat> super quick, Cara. So if anybody's still searching for some inspiration for Father's Day, here is a list of five, well, actually six, because I'm going to put at the top of the list Adele Ferguson's book, uh, Banking Bad. Here's the list. Get your pens out, potties. If your dad or your significant man in your life likes crime novels, try The Chain by Adrian McKinty. Adrian is a Northern Irish author who lived for a period of time in Australia and now lives in New York. This is an amazing crime story that involves a mother who drops her daughter at the bus stop and then she gets a call that changes her entire life. A woman has um, Kylie bound and gagged in the back of her seat and says to the mother, the only way you will ever see your child again is if you pay a ransom and kidnap another child. And it goes on from there. Like a chain letter gone wrong. It's an incredibly tense and scary book. If your dad likes thriller stories and spies, try The New Girl by Daniel Silver. Gabriel Alon is back again, the legendary chief of Israeli intelligence who just on the side happens to be an art restorer. This is probably book 320 in the series of Gabriel Alon. Uh, I don't. He's he's solved more mysteries than um, than Hercule Poirot did over an entire career. And Daniel Silver is a great writer in his hands. This book is uh, is a real gem. If your dad likes cooking, I'm a bit disappointed, Carol, in the photography of this one. We were looking forward to it. However, the recipes are great. Jamie Oliver has a new book. It's called Veg: Easy and Delicious Meals for Everyone. And guess what? The focus is there. Vegetables. You're right. Vegetarian cooking. Do you honestly think, I don't know many fathers who I know who would want a vegetarian cookbook to be brutal. Am I being, am I typecasting here? You are. And I think that's rather sort of particular of your socioeconomic group, Caro, (laughs) that your men all like a big bit of beef. There are lots of men who are vegetarians. And what about this Monday night vegetarian dinner? That's true. That is true. I think it's great that that's cottoning on. This book is terrific. The recipes are great. Typical Jamie Oliver style, very chatty. However, I am disappointed in the photography, but overlook that. Uh, number four. Now, this book arrived yesterday, Carol. I haven't had a proper look at it, but gee, it's reading really well the first few pages. It's called Working with Winston, The Unsung Women Behind Britain's Greatest Statesman by Sitter Zelzer. Zelzer. And I think Sitter is an American journalist and academic. And this looks at, I don't know whether you realise, but Winston Churchill throughout his career, but particularly during the war years, yeah. had a, had a vast uh, array of staff members, mostly most of whom were women, because of course the war was on, and they 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 offered him incredible support staff, not just secretarial, but but in terms of logistics and all sorts of things. And a lot of these women have been interviewed over the years about their life with Winston Churchill and working for him, and they are just as eccentric and brilliant as 
the man for whom they worked. Look, Winston Churchill always does well. Any book, like look at the Boris Johnson one years ago, dare I say Boris wrote a very, very good book on Winston Churchill. Hasn't done much since apart from become Prime Minister. But this (laughs) book, The Unsung Women Behind Britain's Greatest Statesman, working with Winston is a real gem for the dad who loves a history book. And if your dad is a nature lover, may I suggest by British writer, and actually, Carol, he was chief sports writer for The Times for quite a time, Simon Barnes. He's, oh, he's written- a wonderful writer. He's one of my favourites. Gosh, he's a beautiful writer. He he's is. written a book called On the Marsh, A Year Surrounded by Wildness and Wet. That doesn't sound very interesting, I know. But what he and his wife did was they fell in love with this property, eight acres in Norfolk, and it was marshland, mostly marshland, and the home of the most extraordinary birds. And Simon has written a book about his first year in rebuilding his house, his garden, and bringing the marshland and its wildlife into the family environment. What is particularly touching about this, Caro, is that Simon Simon's son is um, has Down syndrome, and Eddie... Uh, in particular, has really, really thrived in this beautiful environment of calm and inspiration. It's such a beautiful book. So I would, they, they're my sort of list of five or six if you put Adele's book at the start of it. Um, that's it for Father's Day. You have a screen. I do, and um, I've got a confession to make. I found myself with a few hours free on Saturday afternoon. Oh, my God, what after- a shock. After working the on the last that. round of the season, and you have a few hours for it. Well, I was just going to watch the footy on TV. You know, I, I did radio. I had a gorgeous walk around the town. You are on unbelievable. Saturday morning How with my son. How do you do it? How do you manage the life you manage? Well, I just thought there's no way Carol would get a screen in this week because she'll be way too. Busy. Well, well, what I did was I I turned on the TV, and to be honest, I was waiting for the Hawthorne West Coast game, and it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. And guess what was running on BBC First? The entire series, I think, four of Shetland. Oh, I love Shetland. Oh, well, because we're all thinking. But I've seen the end. Douglas Henschel is such a wonderful actor. I mean, Brendan came in and out of this and said, gee, there are a lot of close-ups of the old uh, Perez, aren't there? But his performance and that of Mark Bonner as um, the co-father of the child that they shared with um, the late wife, his performance as Duncan is just unbelievable where he totally falls apart in this series and um, ends up drunk and hungover and sort of alone on a beach and sees people floating in the water. There were some wonderful scenes. I reckon that is a great show, Shetland. And I, don't, apparently and I, love, I love his sidekick too. The cops, Tosh. Yeah, Tosh. There's another, there's another series um, about to be made and I am so happy because I just reckon, you know, we love, we love a brutal, cold and wintry and remote backdrop, but I reckon Shetland and those islands are better than any. Although I have to say, ever since you and I said we're going to Scotland next year walking, I'm looking at Shetland in a new, slightly nervous light. All that rain, all that mist. Well, well my, my brother's just done <laughs> And I'm a thinking, mm, maybe a walk in the Bahamas would be better. My brother's just done a walk on the Isle of Skye and he says it's absolutely beautiful. He's been sending photographs. Oh, no midges? No, no, well, no, no, because I think there was so much rain that the midges weren't an issue. <laughs> I also cooked some, while I was watching Shetland Corrie, I was able to also do a recipe for my recipe of the week. Now, you know how you read every Tuesday in the age, you look at the recipes and you go, that looks great, I must do that. And then half the time, most of the time, you don't do it. I stopped doing that after Geraldine Dillon got the sack. That was about. 1977. 20 years ago. This is an oh, Andrew. I didn't, mind, I didn't mind Beverly Sutherland Smith's. They are sometimes a bit hard. Are you joking? They've been wonderful. I, I reckon some of the best food I have cooked has been out of that Tuesday age. The I prefer the Good out. Weekend magazine recipes. 
Oh, I look, find them oh, a bit more accessible. Anyway, go on with this. This is story. one of the easiest recipes I've ever cooked. Braised duck with bacon, prunes and kale. Don't laugh. It's an Andrew McConnell. It is one of the easiest recipes I've made in recent weeks. There's only about eight ingredients. Four duck legs. Well, there are only two of us, so I did two. I went to the market and bought – it's very easy to buy two duck legs, which have the sort of um, the leg and the thigh bit attached. Duck legs – Pitted prunes, zest of half an orange, golden shallots peeled, half a cup of dry sherry, which I happen to have at the top of the cupboard at the back of somewhere, um, chicken stock, smoke, two thick slices of bacon, a bay leaf, half a bunch of kale, which you add later, you wilt in salted water and serve it with a little bit of butter tossed through around your duck recipe and butter, which obviously goes in the kale. It's basically browning the duck and putting it into a crock pot or Le Creuset or whatever pot you have with all the other ingredients apart from the kale and the butter. You cook it on 180 in the oven for about half an hour, then you turn it down to 140 for two hours, and then you take it out. Quack, 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 It is quack, so quack. beautiful. I don't eat duck. And then... Quack, quack, Why? Quack. Because, well, they're, because they're, they're on my golf course and they're heaven. Well, you see chickens running around. You don't seem to worry about that. <laughs> no, no, in a whole new light, Caro, now, that, is... now that we have Dolly and Fred and whatever they want, they live up. No, Norm. I can't remember. Francesca's hens. I can't remember their names in Ballarat. Anyway, I'm it's... seeing chickens in a whole new light too. This is a yummy recipe. And the Vegetarian is, for me. After you take the ducks out of the pot and then you put all the other ingredients, which involve, you know, the pitted prunes, there are only six of them, um, the orange zest, the shallots, etc., the dry sherry, the chicken stock, that's become a sort of a, a sauce and you reduce it and reduce it and reduce it, warm the duck again, pour it over the duck with some wilted kale around it. Was it slightly it. sweet because of the sherry? Slightly and the prunes. Only slightly though. I, I mean, can't do the duck though. I might try it on chicken. It no, will- I'm not eating chicken either. Oh, you are. Don't be ridiculous. Of course you're eating chicken. It is absolutely delicious. Braised duck. And on the same page, there was a fresh um, bolotti bean soup with winter vegetables and porcini, which look yummy too if you want to do something vegetarian. So that's my recipe. Now, Corrie, what are you grumpy about today? Uh, Well, before you go on, Corrie, thank you, Vital Smarts. Remember, Corrie, vitalsmarts.com.au forward slash DSTM for a listener-only offer and more information. Thank you, Vital Smarts. I'm not grumpy with you, but I am grumpy. This is another retailer moan, Caro. I know you're getting a bit bored with these, but this is this is happening again with frequent, um, alarming frequency. Actually, people who come into your shop and take photos of your stock without asking you, and oh, then yeah, walk that out. would be annoying. Like like recipes and cookbooks. Well, we've talked about that before, and that's a copyright issue. But but more particularly, they'll just come in and they'll take photos without asking. Of, of book covers and so on. Now, there are people who come in and say, oh, do you mind if I just take a, a photograph of this because I want to ask my sister, will we get this for Father's Day? And you don't quite have the courage to ask them, well, where are you going to buy it? But uh, it's not it's not illegal, but it, I think, it, and I've checked all the legislation, you can take photos in people's shops without asking them, but I think it's goddamn rude to do it. And you see it often in fashion shots, shops and you see it in places like Rebel when people take photos of... Uh, runners, and you know they're going to buy them online. So just ask the just ask the retailer, can you please take a photo? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm grumpy about today. Wedding shops are the worst, aren't they? Now, six quick questions, Corrie. An invitation arrives in your letterbox to join the Queen at Balmoral. 
this month? Of course do it does. Do you jump in or run away? Oh, what do you think? Jump in. <laughs> jump in. Right in. It might be a little cold up in Scotland at this time of year, even though it's supposed to be summer, but what's not to love about what's happening there at the moment? I notice that they've shifted Randy Andy up there. He was seen going to church with the Queen the other day. That was pretty timely, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it's going, it's going to get worse for him, I think. Um, so the York family are all up there, including Fergie, although I did read on the weekend that Fergie had to do a midnight dash out of Balmoral because um, the Duke of Edinburgh was arriving, and as we know, they don't get on all that well. But everybody's in full attendance. Uh, obviously, Charles and Camilla are there. Uh, the Suffolks are due to be there, uh, not yet sighted. And, of course, Wills and Kate have gone up with the three children, and they apparently love it because they get out and do lots of outdoorsy things, brisk walks and family barbecues, picnics, all of that sort of thing. And also, new guest this year, Caro, Boris Johnson. Really? Well, the Prime Minister is invited every year. So, Boris, I don't know whether he's been. I don't know whether his lady friend will be going either. That's interesting, isn't it? Don't be serving the red wine. Go on. <laughs> Near the white sofa. Um, now, my question to you, who or what is the bro code? Well, sure. Have you been following the Jimmy and Nadia Bartel very sad saga? Well, you mentioned it last week, but I try not to actually embrace that sort of stuff. Well, it's a bit hard if you... If you, you have to, if you're reading the Herald Sun, it's a bit hard not to um, be following it. Bro code after a bit of investigation with footballers I work with or former footballers, it's either a bit like Fight Club. First rule of bro code is that there is no bro code. I shouldn't laugh about this. As it was explained by I think Alice Costa or Jackie Epstein, I think Alice Costa in her column in the Herald Sun on Saturday, the bro code is a code among footballers that Jimmy Bartell is, has broken that. It's okay to play around and have numerous affairs until you start having children. According to the bro code, that's when you start behaving yourself. Oh. Jimmy has broken the bro code. This is according to the article in the Herald Sun. I don't mean to be negative about someone I work with. I mean, I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm getting all of this secondhand, and I've loved working with Jimmy Bartell. He's been a really good footy commentator, but... I feel that um, things are going to get worse for him too and there'll be more stories coming out. These are a highly organised group of women who are involved in some of the stuff that's coming out now and it must be absolutely devastating we, we need for Nadia to, we Bartel. Need to, we need to just – these people have children. We need to back off everyone. Well, I think the problem is that Jimmy has been such a vocal spokesman for respect towards women after what he went through as a child with a, with a history of domestic abuse in his family. And I'm not – I mean, he is – you know, it's – Infidelity and domestic abuse are so diametrically different. I can't even compare them. But I think the respect for women thing and his position with our watch is going to make life difficult for him. Corrie, Seinfeld or Friends? I couldn't believe that your newspaper published this survey. It was done months and months ago and they just got onto it and turned it into a news story half-heartedly somewhat. Anyway, I read that the other day. I thought, Seinfeld or Friends? I always wanted to say Seinfeld. I'd like to say Seinfeld because it's so smart and witty, but I have to say Friends. And I have to say, because it was that period of my life, the kids were little. They'd much rather sit there for half an hour and watch, you know, Mom oh, and Ross and all of the gang rather so than was, I don't know why the comparison has to be made. Well, Odious. it's just such a silly thing. But why is your newspaper taking up good space? Caro, I did want to ask you uh, about uh, – uh, I did want to ask you a footy question, but Miss Jane and I have decided that we're going to actually hold that off to our footy tipping um, pod special. Okay. We, we will record. So we'll just hold off on that one. So I'm not going to ask you that. So people will have to tune in. So you now have to ask me another question. End of winter. What was your best winter tip find discovery new routine? 
see that coat, you know it well. You followed it around the moors of Cornwall. Not the blue, slightly furry one. No, not the blue furry one. <laughs> Stop with the fur. It's not fur. It's some synthetic stuff. No, this is my navy blue uh, coat. Yes, it was a wonderful coat. That husband Peter bought me before we went on our trek, and it's from um, Kathmandu, and it is the best investment that I've had all winter. I have worn it pretty much everywhere, even out to dinner, which is a weird look. It is so warm and snug, but as we discovered in Cornwall, when the sun comes out, you can just take it off, it, it, like it breathes, you're not too hot, and take it off and wrap it around your waist, and it's not very heavy. It's the best investment ever. Gore-Tex, fabulous, love it. Wow. Not inexpensive, but worth the purchase. It's I was the best pretty thing. happy, actually, with my Rains waterproof jacket as You've got, well. Look, you have so many coats, really. You're a woman of coats. Now, um, Cara, what's your GLT? Well, it's a wintry-inspired one as well, and it's probably a repeat of something I talked about a couple of years ago, Corrie, or a year ago on the podcast. It's pinecone time. Never has there been a better stash Always in your car, make sure you have a basket or a box or an extra large shopping bag. Areas of interest, botanic gardens. Can you stop giving the Dandenongs, everyone the tips? Cadinia Park at Geelong. Sorry, Geelong people, you're not hosting a home final. I know. Please stop talking about it. Um, there is so many, and these are big pine cones, Corrie, massive show cones that you could put in a really big basket or you could cage up and use as a wall feature, as Anna from the Op Shop has done. There are so many wonderful things to do with it. This is the time. A lot of wind, the trees are dropping. There are the most beautiful pine cones to be found around Melbourne, western suburbs, northern suburbs, eastern suburbs, inner city. That's all I'm going to say. Well, don't Pine give cones. any Map 59, Map 48, Map 37 references, please. Hell no. We'll keep them to ourselves. No, no, I don't. I've got <laughs> – I found all the ones that need to be – for the first time ever yesterday, I had to walk away with a pile of – from a pile of pine cones because I couldn't fit any more in my bags. Well, it's funny that because on the golf course, you can only fit a few in your Bag. In your golf it's bag. It's quite frustrating, isn't it? You have to walk away from a whole pile of pine cones. There were these two workmen Lamenting. who were having a, having a smoke hole and they, one of them goes, oh, you dropped one. And I looked back and picked it up. He goes, what are you going to do with them anyway? I said, I oh, don't heard tell of... him. Don't tell him. Well, I'm going to burn them in the fire, clearly, although these are these were so beautiful I probably won't. Anyway, Corrie, that's the show for today. Um, thank you very much and for joining thank, me. And thank you to Adele Ferguson, who's just a champ. Banking bad. Make sure you buy it, preferably from Corrie's shop in Hawksburn. Uh, tell your friends and family too, Corrie, to subscribe to our podcasts. Send feedback, comments, tips and suggestions to the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. There's Instagram, there's Twitter. Use the handle if you're Twittering at Don't Shoot Pod and you can email us. Feedback at Don't Shoot Pod. .com.au. Thank you to Vital Smarts. Remember to hold those tough and crucial conversations well with Vital Smarts. And Jane Neild, our producer, who brought in some, has brought in some more beautiful flowers this week, white ones this week. Blossom, Jane, thank you. And Corrie? Don't shoot the messenger, Carol.